0: Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
0: monster house presents
1: death death is inevitable some fear it some hope for it some deny it and yet it comes death is the secret subject of every episode of monster talk the silent lurker waiting patiently in the quiet between our words in this episode we're going to talk about the ways that the living have dealt with the dead over the ages how individuals deal with death is guided by how cultures and society deal with it and the history of the handling of human remains takes us from the sands of egypt to the gardens of europe to the very edge of space this episode won't be for everyone statistically some of you will be in mourning right now and may not want to ponder on wounds so raw and open and we understand and perhaps you can come back to this one later when your grief is not so urgent we'll be here and we're sorry for your loss Last weekend, thanks to my good fortune to work for an amazing company, I found myself in Key West, Florida, and I was able to get up before the rest of my family on Sunday morning and do one of my favorite things. I got to go walking alone in a cemetery. A few blocks from the hotel where we were staying was the Key West Cemetery. It's a beautiful but crowded home to more than 100,000 dead, more than three times the number of living residents on the island. It's a storied place and tranquil, And as I walked among the graves, I could see joggers and bikers out past the gates, dogs barked at their passing, black roosters pecked among the graves. Here and there, a striking memorial, a line of poetry, or some shockingly close birth and death date would arrest me in my wandering. It all reminded me of a recurring theme that I've held onto since I was a teenager. Whether beautiful or macabre, graveyards are for the living.
0: Monster Talk.
1: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake
0: Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner.
1: Today on Monster Talk, we're talking with Tana Owens-Orman, a friend of both Karen and mine, who's turned her fascination with the culture of death into an academic thesis. Some people get interested in this topic around Halloween, but for many of us, the very act of remembering the dead and the accoutrements of the funerary keep us in mind of this fleeting gift of life. The whole topic is a chunky stew of mourning, grief, hope, ceremony, process, resolve, and inevitably the contemplation of the meaning of it all. But this is nothing new and humans have been showering the dead with custom and ritual for longer than written history. We can't deeply cover 5,000 years of global cultural death behaviors, but we'll talk about this a lot in this conversation, where the death is a liberator that takes you away from horror and pain, or it's an unexpected fiend that snatches you from your prime. It is the monster that we must all meet in the end. Monster Dog. Love the topic.
0: Yes, and I'm surprised we haven't treated this topic before. I mean, we've kind of touched upon it.
1: What is the topic? And who are we talking with?
0: We're talking with a friend of, of mine and yours, Tana
2: Owens Orman. Or yes. should I just say Tana Hello. Orman now? Or, or Tana, Tana Orman. Owens. Um, Tana Owens. Owens is the name of, under which you can find my thesis and under which I did my grad work. So, the Tana name Tana of Owens Orman is, is fine. Yeah. The name of my thesis was Pain Respects Death, Commodity Culture, and the Middle Class in Victorian London.
1: And I have to take a drink because you said Victorian. So.
2: Okay. <laughs> so we're
0: going to be talking about beliefs and customs related to death and burial, not yeah. only in Victorian London, but in general, but that's quite broad.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's very broad. You could talk about it forever. I mean, just I'll get, well, Karen's been around me enough to know that this is one of those subjects that I can start talking talking, talk, talk. talk, talk I can just keep going and going.
0: Absolutely. And I think <laughs> us from, a, from an amateur perspective.
2: I I
1: think, um, although if you met me on the street, I don't think anybody would think I look goth. But inside, yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm I'm I'm, talking
0: inside. Yeah,
1: I'm. I'm, Well, I always used to say when I was in high school, you know, like uh, brain by Byron, body by Bubba, because I look like a big redneck, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But but uh, inside, I'm a skinny, dark haired, angst filled teen, even
0: now. Sensitive
2: guy, yeah. (laughs) Sorry? I've never been a I've never been a goth, but uh, some people might think I'm weird because of the interest that I have in the subject matter. But you know, my best friend was more the goth, sort of the mm-hmm. Cure. Sort of goth-like.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's the, well, it's, the goth, it's the goth sensibility. I mean, it's, you know, wandering around in graveyards and writing poetry and all that jazz. <laughs> you know, and if you happen to listen to Bauhaus or whatever, that's fine, too.
0: <laughs> well, I, I dyed my hair um, black when I was about 16.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: And so everyone thought I was a goth in high school, and I wasn't. I just I wanted my hair to be as dark as it could possibly be, and a hairdresser recommended just dye your hair blue-black. And so I did, and that just labeled me for quite some time. Awesome. I, I like the cure, though, you know?
1: <laughs> me too. Uh, and you don't, have, you don't have to smoke clove cigarettes. I
0: smoked real cigarettes at the time. Well,
1: well there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, all of that's just culture signaling. What we're talking about is the real mm-hmm. deal. What, what, the you real know,
0: so. <laughs> deal. <laughs> well, I think we should start by asking you, Tana. And I know her as Tana, so you'll probably say Tana, so...
2: Uh, I I just always call her that. It's pronounced Tana, like Montana. It's not short for Montana. That's just what I tell people <laughs> to remember to pronounce it. Maybe it is. It sounds
1: like uh, like Tana, Warrior of the Wasteland. I mean, like it sounds like a you know fantasy name too. I think.
2: Oh, that that's awesome. I've never had anybody say that, but I do occasionally run into people who are like, I know a Tana, and it's um, strange because there's so few of us around. It does sound like an epithet now that you
0: you put it that way. But uh, so so Tana Tana, how did you become interested in cemeteries? <sighs> well, and, and death practices and and
2: customs. I guess I was always interested. Well, I have to start off by saying, as a kid, I was scared of lots of things, like uh, horror movies. I was absolutely, like, deathly afraid of horror films. I was a big chicken. Um, one of the worst things my mom ever did was let me watch Poltergeist as a kid. And, oh, my gosh, I just, I, I would have horrible nightmares. And also The Blob, the 1950s movie, The Blob, also gave me really horrible nightmares. Um, so I was a big chicken. But I was also really interested in history, And I got interested in cemeteries partly because I was in this program in elementary school where they actually took gifted students and they put us together on Fridays from various schools. And we did certain sort of learning modules. And one of the modules we did was we actually had some class at this place called Fort Concho, which is in San Angelo, Texas. It's an old, um, post-Civil War, Western Frontier-type fort, and we learned a lot about history there. One of our sort of projects was we got to go out to the big cemetery in San Angelo and do grave rubbings, and that really sort of sparked my interest in cemeteries. And I don't know, the rest of it just sort of grew over time. It was just related to my general interest in history and this interest in cemeteries and sort of what you can learn from them, what you could see in them, what you could touch in them, even doing these grave rubbings. And over the years, it just developed. That's that's pretty much it. I just started doing, you know, reading myself. Um, the fact that my sister, and she's younger than me, became a Funeral director is completely independent. (laughs) We grow separately. (laughs) So we actually did not develop those interests together. I was well into my interest, and she was into hers by the time we ever met. So some people think, oh, you have a stepsister who's a funeral director. And I said, nope, it was a completely independent interest.
1: (laughs) You know, I'll probably put something in the intro to the show, because I think death's one of those topics, and what we do with our deceased loved ones, uh, or our deceased enemies, or whatever. You know, sooner or later, we all have to answer that question: What do we do with the body? And right, right. <laughs> but, but you know, for some people, they're coming to; the, they'll be coming to this episode with death freshly on their mind. Somebody that they care about right. with, will have passed, mm-hmm. and for some people. It, it will be maybe they've been fortunate like me, and I haven't had anybody die in a while. And it, I go, I roll back to my natural state, which is I find it fascinating in an abstract way, but don't want right. to have to really think much about what happens to it to people I know. And uh, you know, and the it older was, we get, the older we get, well, you know, as the older mean, we get, I, I'm so practical. I keep telling Kathleen, you know, we're going to cremate, right? Yeah, cremate, you know, so, so it's like we're done, you know, it's really simple, but. <laughs> But that's – there have been so many ways to deal with body disposal over Mm -hmm. history. And maybe you could just take us. could we do like a zip through history really fast of like some of the most common ways cultures have dealt with dealing with their departed?
2: There are a few types. There's sort of burial, cremation, um, exposure. And those are probably the most – well, the ones you're going to hear about the most. I mean – there really aren't a whole lot of other options, unless unless you're talking about sort of offshoots of those three main types, like a type of burial versus... Uh, where, where does ritual cannibalism fit in? <laughs> ritual <laughs> cannibalism would probably fit under disposal. I guess so. Okay. yeah, <laughs> Because it's allowing the body to be consumed by an outside source, which would be people. Um, as opposed to most disposal, which would be, you know, eaten by birds or other animals or just worn down by the weather. Usually in disposal cases, it's going to be predated by things like flying birds, insects. And then some did both. I can think of the Romans in particular. There were, since the Romans um, settled in London and were some of the first sort of true Londinium. Inhabitants. They actually practice both. You would see burial. You would also see cremation. Then you would see cremation in which the ashes were then ritually buried. So you would see a little bit of both. So, which came first? Gosh, I don't know. Probably. Oh, it had to be exposure,
1: right? Because we when do we master fire? You have to do that before you can <laughs> cremate. Right.
2: <laughs>
0: well, yeah, talking about burial would, and cremation.
2: I would say burial is probably the thing we have the best evidence for. Um, obviously, if it's exposure, you're not going to have anything left generally in order to see, oh, this is a spot where they left out bodies for exposure, blah, blah, blah. Um, burial, that remains... Ha-ha remains in one spot. <laughs> and that didn't come from Blake for once. I know. Wow. <laughs> yeah, occasionally I, I come up with the odd pun. Um, my husband hates it. So burial burial is obviously the thing we can find evidence of. Cremation, we sometimes find those. But if they did cremation and they sort of left the body out in the elements, you know, the ashes would blow away, the pyres would blow away, everything would burn down. Burial? certainly had its advantages as far as um, sanitation we know the religions judaism and islam both want to get their bodies of their dead buried asap within 24 hours usually and this probably arose from a standpoint of sanitation i mean as soon as a body as soon as a person dies you start to decompose so the quicker you could put a body in the ground the less bad it was for other people as far as exposure to germs or rot or anything of that nature.
0: Um, so historically, fast burial wasn't always the process, though, was it? Uh, you've got some cultures where bodies were laid out and visited and people might have had an open casket for, for some time.
2: So proper Roman burial customs, i do not I haven't really done much in the way of researching that. I don't know if there was any type of funerary productions involved in Roman burial, Roman um, cremations. Obviously, they went through ceremonies and sort of religious practices, but not necessarily what we think of in the modern day as this sort of prepping a body and having people visit it, having people visit the home, having people bring the funeral potatoes and... (laughs) Things like that. Oh, oh, stop. I have
1: to interject. I, I happen to know for a fact, because I ran into this online, where, you know, big swaths of the country don't know what funeral potatoes are.
0: I only just heard about funeral them. Funeral potatoes, yes. So we need a definition, I think.
1: Can you explain <laughs> that? Or, or I could try, but... I've never I've never seen them in the wild. I've seen them like on on, on pictures, like where people li- literally have them as products called funeral potatoes. So
2: funeral potatoes are sort of symbolic of, and I don't know. You see this a lot in the South um, when somebody dies, people just bring food. I mean, that's not just strictly in the South, but people will bring food to the bereaved family, and for some reason, there's like this particular blend of potatoes that became known as funeral potatoes and it's usually a mix of diced potatoes and cheese and sour cream
1: yeah it looks it's, it looks it, it looks like comfort food in a big way
2: it is yes, comfort yeah. food yeah like a mac and cheese for the dead sort of <laughs> sort of a potato mac and cheese right yeah. <laughs> um, without the pasta but sub potatoes so, yeah, funeral potatoes, it's a thing.
1: Yeah, but pasta, too many people would be making pasta mortem jokes, so we don't want that.
2: Oh, gosh. Oh. What? <laughs> oh, that was a good
0: one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, definitely in the Western world, at least, and I'm talking mostly UK, Britain, the gathering people to mourn the deceased, the laying out of the body in the home, is pretty modern modern in the sense of the last couple of hundred years or so
1: it's okay. i I find it interesting though because even in the in Neanderthal burials, there were burials with you know trinkets and things that whether they thought they were going to an afterlife or just this was some stuff that belonged to the person or or whatever there there was clearly some level of ceremony that sort of distinguished the way that humans deal with their dead compared to animals in general, I know I've heard about elephant graveyards and that sort of thing, but in general, animals die and, you know, they don't bury their dead and there's no ceremony, but humans have fetishized the whole process with all sorts of cultural accoutrements and it, it, it seems like it's wildly divergent around the world how we deal with death, not just in the sense of emotionally, but like literally how we prepare the bodies, how we celebrate their lives you know all those things like is that part of what your research was uh, dealing with
2: yes um humans are unique in the fact that we tend to take great care of our dead and we found ancient peoples who buried and especially if the people were higher ranking uh, we found people buried with all sorts of accoutrements as you say um jewelry animals Sometimes they'll bury their own animals, or in the case of the pharaohs, they'd bury their servants. <laughs> you, you know, you would entomb people to act as your servants as the afterlife. So while burial wasn't always necessarily a drawn-out process, there's generally been an evidence of care across most cultures, whether it's, you know, washing and wrapping the bodies or burying with particular mementos burying with beloved animals um, even just marking graves in general so we can know and can revisit you know somebody who's deceased. It's a very human thing and it's something that all humans have had to deal with and especially once you had what you would call civilization and where people were living in concentrated areas you had to Put even more care into disposal of bodies because suddenly, you know, the disposal, you couldn't just bury them wherever you happen to be for the day if you were a nomadic or what have you. Although some cultures still do that. I was actually in Kenya just a week ago, and we were speaking to some tribes, people from the Samburu tribe, and I asked how their tribe handled deceased people. And because they're a nomadic tribe who only lives, who basically they're pastoralists and they follow pasture. Um, they move with their animals. They move with these small villages and families. I said, what do you do when somebody dies? How do you handle the body? And he said, they bury them generally just wherever they are. So, you know, in that case, they'll take care of the body and they'll bury it, but they won't necessarily ever be able to find it again because they may not ever live. Right, because they may never live in that area again. Right. So some people still do that, but most of us live in set areas. Uh, We live in cities. When somebody dies, you have to get rid of the body and you can't just bury it in your backyard. (laughs) In most places, that's illegal. Uh, It would also be very sketchy, so you have to bury them in a centralized place, um, usually in a cemetery, or have them cremated, or what have you. There are very few options in the U.S. besides burial and cremation. There is one city, I believe it's called Crestone, Colorado, where you can actually be burned in an outdoor funeral pyre.
1: That's Viking awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah I wonder if that's
0: been enacted for a while.
2: <laughs> it, yeah, it's 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 somewhat of an artsy small town, from what I understand, and people will actually move there because you have to be a resident of, I think, the county for a certain amount of time. You can't just send your body there and have it have that. You have to earn outdoor cremation done. You have to earn. Yeah, it, you have to live there. You have to earn the burn at least a bit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> earn the burn right.
1: to be burnt to be put on th- the
0: earth Sounds like a right. political slogan exactly uh-huh.
2: so. so yeah so if anybody really wants to be burned on an outdoor funeral pie research, research uh cristo in colorado
1: but as you mentioned the u.s I, I understand that in england you can basically buy a good cardboard box and as long as you own the land you can be buried on it or something along those lines i heard it was fairly easy to get a a, a simple, you know, like just a simple organic coffin burial in England, and I heard it. So I obviously it must be
2: out, true. Like? <laughs> we I'm not sure about, about that, that, honestly. Yeah, I um,
1: specifically I heard it in two places. I I I read it in an article, which is not technically hearing, and I believe I also heard it from um, Chris Lackey on the HP Podcraft podcast, where they were talking about he, he was surprised that you don't necessarily have to have a coffin for burial. So there may be some ordinances around where you can bury him, but it's clearly much less strict about the groundwater issues and all the stuff they they cite right. around cemeteries in the U.S. So.
2: I was about to say there are some myths about um, burials in the United States as far as cemeteries. For instance, embalming is not required. It's not legally required. A lot of people think it is. A lot of sort of unscrupulous funeral directors may lead you to believe that it is a requirement, and it is not. And what does embalming involve? Typically? Embalming is essentially, it's a formaldehyde preparation, and basically they make a cut in, I think it's up by the jugular vein. They put... A thing—that's the scientific name. A thing. Um, basically, they—they they,
1: <laughs> they use a noun and then they verb the hell out of you.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, if I, I, my stepsister would know what it's called since she's done it before. I, I think it might just be called an embalming needle. And essentially, they push all the blood out of your body and they replace it with a solution that's essentially for malhide, and it forestalls decomposition. It was originally used, when you saw it in the early, it's sort of the 19th century in the modern world. If you stretch the definition of embalming, you could say the pharaohs embalmed bodies, um, mummies for burial, but they did it in a different way, which is somewhat... People have to guess at it. It involved drying out the body with natron and removing the organs. Right. And it's still somewhat mysterious how they did it. And I think there are a few other cultures that did sort of an early version of embalming. But modern embalming, as we know it, was really a 19th century development a practice. And it really took off in the U.S. as opposed to the U.K. where it did not take off And it preserves the body long enough for viewing or for shipment. And when it was advertised, especially in the 19th century, they would say, oh, look, we sent this body from one of the colonies. This would be England, of course. We sent the body from New Zealand or Australia all the way back to London, and it's perfectly you know, more or less preserved. And they would say, look, it can save the body for you know four weeks or ever how long mm-hmm. without without it starting to go through a decomposition period. Now funeral directors, funeral homes, they just use it to keep a body basically looking fresh through a viewing wow. to a funeral. And most people assume that it's to sort of get rid of pathogens from the body or something, and it's not. As a matter of fact, there's a certain turn against embalming because it's a lot of toxic chemicals, essentially. Embalming fluid's not good for anybody. (laughs) And some people are actually concerned about burying embalmed bodies because they say that can leach into the ground, especially if it's not sealed properly in a casket and a vault but most people still do it because it's just sort of become accepted practice in this country
0: okay it's making me think we should do a a topic at some point too on the incorruptibles the saints
2: ah yes yeah that's interesting yeah
1: i was i wanted to mention that the the idea if i understand it correctly is that if a body is exhumed and has not been embalmed or mummified or treated in some way, and somehow appears to Mm -hmm. still be fresh, despite the passage of years, that that's one of the signs of possible sainthood within the Catholic tradition. I I don't know how that started, but it's a really interesting belief. It reminds me very much of when I was growing up in my church community. It was generally frowned upon if you wanted to be cremated, because the idea was that when Christ comes back, he will be you know raising the dead and you you want to have a body so that <laughs> right. when it's raised it can be but it always seemed weirdly faithless in the power of a deity that you're like if this deity can create the universe and can create life how would it possibly be a challenge for it to put back together your body i don't understand yeah. you know but okay. but that but that was the belief in fact um exactly yeah it it didn't really matter whether it makes any sense it it matters that that was culturally the accepted norm, and so you were considered a weirdo if you wanted to be cremated, so I'm a weirdo. Right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, I'm a weirdo, too, so as are my parents. Um, they'll both be my grandparents. At least two of them were both cremated, but yeah, I always thought that was a strange argument because what if somebody is torn apart and eaten my lions, it, does that mean they can't be resurrected? What if somebody dies in a plane crash and they essentially are smashing atoms?
1: Yeah, yeah, or burned to death in a fire. There's all kinds of, yeah, yeah.
2: Right, which, burned to death in a fire, which is exactly what cremation is. Well, <laughs> except you're already there.
1: <laughs> Lacks the pomp and circumstance, but yeah. What?
0: <laughs> yes. I guess they, they just don't think of these things.
1: Culture, man. It's culture. So mm-hmm.
2: Christians were actually... Uh, Very anti-cremation for a long time. I think there's some evidence for some early cremations in early Christians um, in like ancient Rome and some of those other areas. But the church in general was very against cremation for the exact reason you state is that it seems to indicate either you don't want to be resurrected bodily or that you don't care. And actually, in Britain, there was a movement for cremation in the late 19th century. Um, Cremation was not illegal, but it was suspicious. There were people who objected both because of the religious reasons and also because people feared that oh, well, if you want to cremate a body, that means we can't figure out if there was some foul play involved. So that's mm. suspicious. If you want to cremate your relative, maybe you killed them. I don't know. But um, they would actually, there was actually a group called the Cremation Society, and they would engage occasionally in stealth cremation, basically out in the woods, and people would try and stop them. And then they'd face scrutiny and what have you. Eventually, cremation explicitly became legalized and regulated in, I believe, 1902 in Britain. And in Britain, cremation is much more popular than it is in the U.S. It's on the rise as far as popularity in the U.S., but in Britain because of their lack of space and because I think also partly due to the fact that they tend to be less evangelically religious and i don't mean evangelical mm-hmm. in the term just in the term evangelical like southern baptist type evangelical so i think that's part of the reason also why it's more popular there the catholic church said in 1963 i think was that around the time of vatican two Cal- yeah vatican council II. yeah yeah that they accepted cremation And it was funny the way they put it. It was like, as long as you're not denying that God can resurrect you bodily, we're okay with cremation. And I think priests, a couple of years later, were actually allowed to perform ceremonies
0: for cremations. Well, I wonder if it was looked down upon too, because it was used in some of the colonies, places like India and Hindu countries. And I was thinking in terms of uh, how some countries like in India, how they'll cremate people and then throw their ashes into the Ganges or something like right. that. And, uh, I wasn't that practice of, uh, I think it's called, I think you pronounce it Sati, uh, which is uh, a widow who would cast herself who, onto the yes. funeral pyre of her husband. And yeah, I think that's been yeah. uh, yes. deemed illegal, but only in recent decades or recent years.
1: I believe so. It th- Those kind of things still happen.
0: Yeah, I've heard of, yeah, sort of cases where and It, 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 it
1: sounds very romantic in, in, the, in one sense, unless the woman doesn't actually want to be burned alive, in which case it sounds horrible. Right. So I
0: like, <laughs> I, Talked into it by a relative. So. Yeah,
1: but I always heard it as the wife. I, I never looked into it, but I've always heard it was the wife killed with the husband if the husband is alive and the wife dies does does he not get the same treatment
0: he can can get married again i guess no
2: that seems very unfair somehow (laughs) i don't think it was custom for the husband to be killed just the wife (laughs) wow and i can i can definitely see in victorian england there being a sort of racial element of uh they burn bodies in those uh, places like India and we're much, we're much more cultured than that because certainly many Victorians held that kind of attitude. There's an interesting tidbit I learned from a friend who researched food around the same time I was researching death, which is funny because those are sort of things that everybody, food, sex, death, everybody that finds those subjects really interesting. Nobody likes taxes, (laughs) I thought you were no, talking about things is. you can't avoid. No, things that people are interested in when it's your research topic. <laughs> people aren't very interested in legal stuff, but talk about death or talk about food or talk about sex, mm-hmm. and people are suddenly perked up like, ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, it sounds like an awesome night, right? <laughs> so, So my friend told me that canned goods were actually very popular for British colonials in India because even if the food was crummy— and potentially laced with botulism or something, eating a canned good of food made in back in good old Blighty was better than eating the foods that the natives ate, even yeah. though that was fresher and available and in abundance to these Brits. They would rather eat this crummy canned food because it was a you know, civilized <laughs> Civilized and you know had the stamp of approval Of the queen herself or something on there so, The strange things people do For um, nationalism
1: This episode of Monster Talk is brought to you by Audible Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners A free audiobook with a 30 day trial membership Just go to audibletrial.com Forward slash monster talk browse through their unmatched collection of titles, select one and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Choosing Audible as an advertiser was easy because I really do use it all the time. I've been an Audible member since 2003 and use Audible to prepare for many episodes of this show. Many of the books we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My pick for this month is World War Z, the complete edition by Max Brooks. If you've only seen the movie, you've missed everything wonderful about this title. Modeled after Studs Terkel's oral history of World War II, Brooks takes us on an amazing series of interviews with the people who fought the war against Zed, the shambling Romero-style zombies who very nearly wipe out everyone. The book on its own is brilliant. Despite a clear sense of humor, Brooks never falls into parody here. Yes, he is the son of Mel Brooks and the late, great Anne Bancroft. But it isn't just the amazing writing that makes this my choice for you. In this Audible title, you get an amazing, star-studied cast of voice actors reading the already great dialogue, including F. Murray Abraham, Alan Alda, René Auberginois, Bruce Boxleitner, Max Brooks, Nikki Klein, Common, Denise Crosby, Frank Darabont, Mark Hamill, Nathan Fillion, Maz Gibroni, Alfred Molina, Simon Pegg, Jurgen Prochnow, Carl Reiner, Rob Reiner, Henry Rollins, Jerry Ryan, Paul Sorvino, John Torturo, and, and many, many more. If you love zombies and haven't heard this incredible audiobook, you need to fix that as soon as possible. With Audible, you can listen to your books on your phone, in your car, while you're mowing the grass, and if you're a Kindle user, you can hop seamlessly between devices with Amazon's Whisper Sync. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash Monstertalk. But I give World War Z, the complete edition by Max Brooks, my unconditional recommendation as this month's Monster Talk selection. To download your free audiobook while also supporting this show, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash Monstertalk and sign up today.
0: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line.
1: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
0: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh?
1: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. <laughs> That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No mm-hmm. purchase necessary. by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: We could go off on so many uh, in so many different directions with this topic. I wanted to ask you a little bit since you focused on Victorian London. If we could talk a little bit about Victorian practices surrounding death and morality. Uh, I've always been interested in memento mori jewellery and things like death photographs. Can we talk a little bit about
2: that and what you uncovered in your research? So memento mori, the jewellery in particular you're talking about, um, the jewellery became very popular. It was a very popular thing to have locks of hair um, from the deceased, um, jewelry made out of jet which um like onyx the best, isn't yeah onyx wasn't necessarily as popular because jet they could easily get in england i believe it was called whitby jet which i mentioned that in my thesis which was an area in england because jet is obviously it's made from driftwood it's basically they created a thing from burning and pressing driftwood and they create this jet jewelry and widby jet was sort of considered the best. And so you would have jet jewelry Hair jewelry, you know, do you have elaborate hair jewelry? You would have little wreaths made of hair or little lockets with hair, usually with black ribbons or black tassels or jet or onyx or later black glass was cheaper than jet, I believe. This would all go along with your morning wear. And let me clarify that we're talking about mostly middle class to upper class practices here. The poor couldn't really afford this kind of stuff. I mean, they might keep locks of hair or whatever from a person who was deceased, but this fancy jewelry, the black mourning silks, the photography, this kind of stuff was sort of out of the price range of the poor and sure. the really working class. If you read my thesis, it goes very much into sort of what is the middle class, and it was... There are a number of unsatisfying definitions, but it's basically related to how people are, what their relationship is with the means of production. (laughs) You can see more about what the definition of the middle class is if you look at my thesis. But basically the middle class was not the working class and they were not the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. So they were a range of people um, from... Low shopkeepers to wealthy factory-owning magnates who could be even richer than aristocrats. They just lacked the actual aristocratic blood. Yeah, the titles, right? Right. And often they bought those titles as time went on. So they eventually, you would see a lot of them eventually enter the aristocracy and even into the royal family by buying their way in, which some of them very well could. So it was this group of people who were targeted by people selling funeral memorabilia. And there were a lot of elaborate rules around things like wearing mourning dress. Queen Victoria was England's most famous widow. She stayed in mourning for roughly 40 years after the death of her husband, Prince Albert. And she is part of the reason why people believed there was this romanticism and cult of death because the very pinnacle of the nation, the queen was engaging in this sort of elaborate mourning and wearing black.
1: Yeah, I had actually read about, not not just with the dealing of the dead, like how to dispose of them, but also with some of the requirements for how long you had to wear black and having to put up black crepe all over the place. And right. Just do listen to music. and It was a culturally expensive thing. I mean, it was like really uh, – and there was an elaborate, uh, I guess, commerce built up around it.
2: Yes, yeah, so and that was very much a 19th century development as a lot of commerce was. You started to see really – the era of things like department stores and catalogs. And all this is happening at the same time when people are finding new and novel ways to deal with death, um, new and novel ways to sort of show their social status. And funerals became a way to show social status. Um, You would hire hearses, you would hire horses, and the horses would wear ostrich feather black plumes and people would wear black crepe and black silk and you would hire these people called mutes who would actually act as these silent mourners that were not related to you in any way shape or form you they were just these guys that the undertaker would go out and say hey I'm going to give you you know 20 shillings if you go be a mute for me for the day and so you would have these weird guys dressed in like black top hats and with black silks, like following the hearse and such. And you were just there as an accoutrement and to show how much money you had and how important you were.
1: I just say, It sounds like something right out of a Hammer film. Sorry. Yes.
0: Cool. Isn't there some kind of meme getting around on Facebook? Uh, someone offering to turn up to your funeral. If you pay them now, when you die, they'll turn up wearing black and crying hysterically or something to...
1: And put roses on your coffin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not speak to anybody and leave. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> to make it seem really uh, mysterious. And <laughs> yeah.
2: The mutes it's would not make gig. any noise though. The mutes are actually from a tradition. I think it dates back to Roman times. I, I think I might mention that in my thesis, um, the idea of a mute observer at a funeral and burial. Um, it's interesting. It's almost like pant or pantomime. It's pantomime, or, or, essentially. Yeah, mm. but and, um, that's
1: interesting because I always think of I think of mourners in the paid sense. Like I always heard about, I think it was the Greek mourners, where you know it's like wildly overacting their grief. You know, but this is like mm. more somber and quiet. I like this. Yeah, I I like this a lot. Yeah.
0: Well, these were <laughs> the British.
2: You don't overreact.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is anecdotal, but I uh, know of a family in Australia and their young. Son died, and the mother apparently threw herself into the uh, the 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 burial ground and um, was crying hysterically. And everyone was just very emotional, and you know the the kind of thing you see in movies and and TV, that kind of thing. But it sounds like it was over the top mourning. Quite literally. Yeah.
1: That is, I guess, it's one of those things where, in addition to how do we deal with the bodies, how do we deal with our own grief? These are all inextricably combined topics. Mm -hmm
2: right and there was an element of public health as well in the 19th century you saw a lot of interest in science and basically people started blaming dead bodies for all sorts of ills and they can't really be blamed because the state of cemeteries in london in the sort of early mid-19th century was not was not very good um you used to be buried. People would, once upon a time, you'd be a member of a parish. And your parish church, you know, you'd be baptized there, you'd grow up there, you'd be married there, and then eventually you'd die and they'd bury you in the parish right there in the little churchyard. Mm-hmm. And after a certain amount of time, as London grew and grew and grew, the amount of people in any given parish grew and grew and grew, and suddenly you would bury somebody And then you bury some more, then you bury some more, and then it's all filled up. So you'd have to take out some bones of people who'd been buried, well, long enough, basically, to have decomposed. And you take the bones out, put them in a charnel house or in a crypt, and then start burying more people. And... Over time, you're going to start leaving bits of people behind. <laughs> and there were a lot of public complaints you would see in newspapers, um, magazines about the state of churchyards and how disgusting and gross they were because these people claim you would see bones sticking up, random skulls, uh, flies coming up, and generally causing very unpleasant state of things around these parish churchyards. And then as people became more interested in science, they began to go, oh, well, we have these diseases that are happening, and we don't know why. You know what might be happening? These dead bodies are giving off miasmas, miasmas, and they're making us sick. And so we have to do something about this. And Paris, Paris really did it first So these big cities. Paris had, you know, vast overcrowded cemeteries. And in, in the mid-18th century, they actually started discussing what to do. And in 1790, they started disinterring a lot of their municipal cemeteries, including one called Les Saints Innocence, which I think was their biggest cemetery in Paris. And they took all these bones out. And they stacked them up and they made, they built the infamous catacombs, which if you've ever been to Paris, you can actually go on tours of the catacombs underground where they've done these very artsy things with bones. Um, I've actually never had the opportunity to see this, but it's on my sort of list for death-related tourism. I think my husband has been, but I haven't. And you go under there and all these bones are just elaborately arranged. And they're marked with sort of what year they were disinterred and what cemetery they came from. And they built and designed the first of what's known as the garden cemeteries, um, Père Lachaise. If you've ever been to Paris, you can go visit Père Lachaise. One of the most famous residents is Jim Morrison of The Doors. Oscar Wilde's there. Oscar Wilde is there. The lady who sang La Vie en Rose. Edith Piaf is there. Chopin is buried there. There's, It's sort of a who's who of Parisians and even non-Parisians. Um, and it opened in 1802, I believe. And it's a beautiful cemetery. You walk through. It's got these wide avenues, these above-ground tombs, which were very trendy in the 19th century. And... And as far as they were concerned, (laughs) this helped the general public health of the city. And so basically London ended up doing the same thing. You saw churchyards close. You saw the opening of these, quote-unquote, garden cemeteries, of which the best-known are sort of shorthand called the Magnificent Seven. Um, Highgate Cemetery is one of those, although it wasn't the first, and Highgate is Probably best known in popular culture for the, the Highgate vampire. The legend of yeah. the Highgate vampire.
1: That's on our, our, our bucket list to cover on the show. We it's
2: <laughs> it's uh,
1: we've literally been talking about that for like what seven years. We're gonna cover that. I don't know a while. Yeah.
0: I I think easily. Yeah. Ten years. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> so Highgate Highgate is beautiful and I've been there and it's gorgeous. And one side of it is really wild and overgrown, and you have to take a paid tour in order to go visit it. They, as far as I know, don't bury anybody else in that side. The other side is open, and I believe it's the east side, is where Karl Marx is buried. So his the much later marker, this big bust of Karl Marx, is um, a bit of a tourist attraction if for some people. If you're a movie people. lover...
1: And like uh, the Amicus movies, Tales from the Crypt, 1972, they uh, there's like a wraparound story to connect the Tales from the Crypt vignettes in that movie. The wraparound story is filmed in Highgate. It's, it's got some beautiful shots of the old. I think Highgate's actually been fixed up quite a bit since then, but it still looks really cool.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, Highgate, Highgate fell into disrepair for a long time. And there's a not-for-profit group called Friends of Highgate Cemetery that I think has really done... A lot of work to it, It sort of restored it back to its former glory, and it's got the circle of Lebanon and Egyptian style. Very expensive for the time, tombs. They're above ground, and sort of above ground, below ground. That's sort of hard to explain, but if you see it, you'd understand what I mean. If you've been to Highgate, I
0: I think I I know what you mean. And so, this is the style that has uh, influenced. Cemeteries like the the ones in New Orleans, the right Uh can't remember the names of them. What are they? It's like Cemetery One, Two, and Three, or something. Saint, like,
2: Saint Louis cemeteries, one, Saint two, Louis. And three. That's it. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah. yeah. Saint Louis Cemetery Number One is the oldest. Um, it's the one that's actually closed. Well, you can no it's longer wander around it. It's the one with Marie Laveau and yeah. Nicholas Cage bought and built this pyramidal tomb, although. It, it looks ridiculous and you think nicholas cage oh my gosh what a ridiculous guy but apparently when he built that tomb he actually gave a lot of money to help with the restoration of saint louis number no. one cemetery so while his tomb looks somewhat ridiculous he did some good um, because a lot of that stuff is if there's nobody to take care of it it starts to crumble and decay and you see this in all these grand garden cemeteries after a while People's families die off. Their families are no longer wealthy. They can't maintain these places. Um, They sort of go out of fashion. And when you go there, you'll see a lot of crumbling tombs and not. Which was the
0: one in um, in Easy Rider? Oh,
2: uh, I think that was St. Louis Cemetery Number One. Okay. Yeah,
1: I I took a tour. It was. It was. I just actually just read about it yesterday because Easy Rider is hitting its fiftieth anniversary. And they talked about that they filmed there without permission, and now it's nobody's allowed to film there. Right?
0: Either. Yeah, it's all blocked yeah. off. You, you can't get in after three p.m. I think.
2: Yeah, and it's it's full of tour groups when you go on a tour. Yeah, <laughs> I went on one of those. Crammed with tour groups, and it's very very hot if you go on in the summer. And that's when we did. Yes. Get.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I went mean, in August.
2: It was just horrible. <laughs> yeah. So those those tombs were above ground and. You know, what they'll say is because of the flooding, because of the water table. And there's a certain amount of truth to that when you have flooding in an area like that. Yes, coffins can rise to the ground or rise out of the ground, float, float away. But it was also very much a style among a very particular class of French-influenced upper-class people. Because they were doing the same thing in Paris at the time, you know, the who's who of Paris. They were building these above-ground tombs. In places like Pere Lachaise, so you also saw this happening in New Orleans as well. So there's a little bit, there's more to the story than just the cemetery's flood and people are going to float away.
1: I mentioned to you all, when we were prepping for the show. I don't know. It might have been like eight years ago. I forgot. I got this. I got this idea in my head that this maybe was you know based on a myth or there was some mythology. Are mythologizing? Is that a real word? <laughs> that yeah. they were, myth- <laughs> yeah, yeah, that they were mythologizing around the idea that that it was strictly because of the, the water table. And and I, one of the things that struck me was, you know, flooding and, and low water tables exist all over the world, but New Orleans is the only place I know that really celebrates that. Here's our solution: we have above ground tombs, exactly. Yeah. And and I and and so you know, do they have these in Holland? You know, how do they deal with it? And so I started doing these experiments and simultaneously doing library research, and, and I. I realized that there definitely was an increase in this style around the time of the Spanish governorship of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And I found multiple obscure academic resources that claimed that that was the real reason and that the pop-up coffin thing was a myth. Now, right. on a high water table, you, you don't want to bury a coffin in water. You know, exactly. the water table so high that when you dig, you hit water, of course it makes sense. What I did, though, I, I did some experiments in sandy soil and used the the biggest fish tank I could get and did a, a scale replica. And basically after the equivalent of burying it in two feet, I couldn't get a substitute, you know, like a model to, right. to pop up. And I was using things that were extremely buoyant, like empty plastic water bottles uh-huh. and, and uh, you know, to try to get them to pop out. And I couldn't get it to work. But at the same time, you do definitely see during hurricanes and flooding, you know, it's not uncommon to see cemeteries washed open and coffins popping right up. You know, that really does happen. But you have to have something happen in the water table to push up from below i There's gotta be a lot of like pressure coming up to get one to come up out of the ground. It's really interesting though it's much more complicated than the simple narrative that's that's taken root, and I think that right. that's a myth Always the case. yeah it's it's it, yeah it, I think that their explanation is actually the lowest cause, like the bigger cause is cultural than than physics, right, but boy, right. they have leaned into it hard if you go down there to do symmetry tours. Uh, and Absolutely. I think
0: in Key West as well, don't they have that same style? Uh, yeah, I think, they do. And, and I think I haven't been to Key West, legends.
2: but I've heard that.
1: Yeah, they have yeah. a very low water table in Florida in general. Uh, and a lot of times if you find a cemetery, it'll be on a hill, You know, which is not much of a hill. It's really funny.
0: A human-made uh, hill, right? <laughs> I mean, I it's a some, tiny hill. I mean,
1: around Orlando, I, I, you know, in the Navy, I was there for a year. I explored a lot and went to the cemeteries and stuff, and it, I thought a lot about that because you know flooding was so common down there. But in Key West, it's got really low water tables. So
0: it is Key West Cemetery, and the epitaphs are things like "I told you I was sick." Yeah. <laughs> and let me but see. The ones that
1: show up in the Ripley's, right? That kind of thing.
0: I'm I'm just resting my eyes There's another one. Apparently it's known for all the, the humorous epitaphs. So. <laughs>
2: I could do a whole show just on gravestones and sort of the evolution of grave decorations. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of
0: cemeteries in Australia are comparatively new. They, the old ones are kind of 19th century, really. You don't get much right. older than that. Certain styles, depending on religion and uh depending on the age of the person who died and it's it's really a lot of people would look at it as morbid but it's fascinating too
2: i go into that quite a bit as far as the symbolism my thesis and i can talk about stuff sort of beyond that what i've seen on my own um in places i've seen australia i've seen the melbourne general cemetery which is interesting because it's kind of old it's like late 19th century up and it's of course still That's in settled. use um <laughs> a lot of these um 19th century cemeteries in britain are actually still in use the oldest one of the garden cemeteries in london is Kensal green and i've actually gone there and it is still in use they're still burying people there obviously not the rate they would have in the 19th century but it's still you will see fresh graves there still it think part of Highgate is still accepting new burials. And obviously, if your family has owned something for generation upon generation upon generation, you can actually still use it.
0: Can you reuse a plot? Because I think that's what some of my family members have done in Australia, but this is going back decades ago. And I just don't know if that's still legal.
2: The way Highgate worked, at least when it first opened, High, Kensal Green, these other ones, you would generally buy... A plot that was more of a crypt, and you could buy like a really deep one, say 25 feet down or something, and you could stack people. (laughs) You could stack people, and you would just every time you would reopen the grave. Every time you wanted to put somebody new in there. So when you look at some of these cemeteries, I mean, they have 100,000 people in them. And you're like, where are they? They're (laughs) stacked one on top of each other. Um, I don't know if that's the way it works now. I'm guessing not because it's not really pragmatic unless you have a sort of a mausoleum type vault that you can open, you know, put the coffins in usually on shelves.
1: I, it's probably not like I'm picturing it but I'm imagining the most morbid game of Jenga ever
2: yes <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> I, I think that's sort of the way I think it's sort of the way it went they would put them in and they, they would put dirt on top of them and mm-hmm. close it up then they could put somebody else on and eventually I would assume Got some them. weight of those coffins would you know cause the person buried the longest down the bottom to be squished but but no casualties then, right no yeah. casualties let's hope Let's hope nobody was buried alive. Oh,
1: my God. But what if they had been? Surely they could put a bell in their coffin.
2: Oh, the bell in the coffin. I hate this. Um, (laughs) I thought it was true. That is something that there, and you can find evidence that somebody actually put patents. People actually applied for patents. um, Probably one is the best known that you'll see a drawing of somebody with a bell and a coffin. And... But there's no evidence that anybody really used them. And there's no evidence that they really went beyond the patent point. And sort of, from these drawings, people sort of got this idea that it was actually a not common thing, but that you actually saw it. But as far, in my research, I can never find any evidence that anybody ever actually was buried in a coffin, like with a bell. It's really interesting.
1: That's, that's such a, a widespread myth. Right. Uh, if it is a myth, which, and I just, you know, mean, you know, we've, the cool thing about talking about it here is, is you know, we're going to get a lot of responses to that. Cause I know a lot of people love that story yes. about the people being deathly afraid of being buried alive. Mm-hmm. I blame Poe because <laughs> his, his story about being buried alive right. is, is that just compounds a bunch of stories about people being buried alive. And it sounds like it's a true story. Well, what uh, is of how uh, yeah? So I don't know
0: what is behind this fear. Is it a particular disease that was rampant at the time, like, like something like tuberculosis? a fear of appearing dead, but actually being just sick and in a coma or
2: asleep think, or something like that. I think being buried alive is a sort of long-standing human fear. Um, the idea of being in a closed place—you're going to die. Nobody can hear you unless um, you're Chris Angel. And there were, of course, stories where people would <laughs> would claim that, oh, so-and-so, and a lot of that, I think, was sort of urban legends, because most of the time, if somebody was buried alive, there was going to be no reason to dig them up. <laughs> so you would never find out that they were buried alive. But there's also stories about people finding claw marks on the inside of coffins, nice. which may or may not be true. I don't know. That some Think about some of the urban legends we have, and then think, well... They had 19th, 18th century versions of these kind of urban legends. So the bell thing was never, from my research, I never actually saw that put into practice. They did have also people who would patent ideas for air tubes, so that if somebody was accidentally buried alive, they would have an air tube that they could open and they could breathe. Until they stopped until they so i don't know so there were apparently some cemeteries that had i don't know how to describe them but sort of resting in niches that you would sit a coffin in for a few days and maybe go back and check and make sure you're dead i don't know how often that was actually used or if, or if that was somebody's explanation for something after the fact but yeah being buried alive was a fear, but there's not a lot of evidence that it happened with any frequency, or that people really would go through these sort of elaborate.
1: Is that ex, ex post mortem facto?
2: Yes. <laughs> so, so yeah, and um, saved by the bell is a term that comes from boxing. The etymology of that term is very easy to trace. So. Some people to to claim methods. that it's that it's linked to these bell coffins. No, it's linked from boxing. It's an easily traceable etymology for saved by the bell. And another thing that is one of my pet peeves that I'll see things shared on Facebook or whatever are these cages you'll see over burial plots. And I saw these a lot in Edinburgh Scotland, and. You will see them in some other places as well, and they would call them mort-safes.
0: It yes, was a so type of
2: mort these. safe. But the, basically, they were these metal bars that were intertwined, and you would put it down over a burial spot, and it would go down three, four, six feet. Uh, it was basically to stop people from digging up bodies. It was not, as I've seen explained, in some things on Facebook and what have you, to keep people from coming back as vampires. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> How useful. So that would be uh, grave robbers, people wanting to steal yes. jewelry.
2: Resurrection men, people,
1: resurrectionists. Yeah. People, yeah.
2: people wanting to steal the bodies, people wanting to steal stuff in the coffin, people wanting to steal the hardware from the coffins themselves, because coffins were during this you know, great renaissance of consumerism becoming very expensive items. They'd have brass, copper, nickel fittings that people would actually see it. They'd steal the nails. Um, they'd steal the name plates and they'd go sell the scrap metal. So the coffin itself was often a source of valuables as well as the person inside with the jewelry and whatever else they might be buried with. And then of course the bodies themselves which they could sell to medical students or an advocate. This reminds me,
1: you know, my family uh, raised hogs and there's this saying in the hog industry, uh, <laughs> you know, you can use every, everything but the oink.
0: Yeah, i
1: and that. And that sounds about the same. Although I heard when it came to criminal prosecution, that it was common for the resurrection men to strip the body naked and leave the clothes and stuff because it was not like a death penalty crime to steal the body, but it was a crime to steal all the grave stuff.
2: It was a crime to steal the body. If nothing else, you would, um, you know, you would not be a socially acceptable personage for stealing bodies. That was just bad, and people were afraid of it, and. You know, you had, once I said, again, this interest in science that you were really seeing burgeoning in the 18th century in particular, and people would steal these bodies, provide them to medical schools, medical students, people just sort of learning anatomy on their own, like in their house, (laughs) like these surgeons. Um, Oh, yeah, the the Ben Franklin. Early pioneers of medicine, really, but they couldn't get bodies. And because people thought dissecting human body was immoral, um, they didn't want that to happen to themselves or to their relatives. And you couldn't just, you know, take bodies of paupers and stuff until later, when eventually that became legal. So in because so many bodies were being stolen, and often it was not like, the wealthy people necessarily whose bodies would be stolen i mean it could be anybody really but the resurrection men would generally go for the path of least resistance and try and dig up paupers for bodies um, when they were after actual bodies and not what was on the bodies um, because paupers were often buried in either shallow or mass graves so you know they would break into the graves that were easiest to get into if they wanted the body. Um, in 1752, because of this problem, because of public outcry, there was actually a murder act passed. Um, one of the parts of the murder act was that executed murderers could be taken for dissection as opposed to being hung out in public or you know hanging in the gibbets or what have you. People who needed bodies for study could take these bodies and dissect them. And eventually even that was not enough. And I believe 1832 they passed an act where a relative could either donate a body, as long as it could sort of be quote unquote proven, the relative didn't object. And this was a time when a lot of people were illiterate and couldn't have signed documents to the contrary. And they would also take bodies from like the workhouses or the poorhouses. And as long as they couldn't find anybody to claim the body or anybody to object, they could take that body and use it for dissection. All
1: right. So that was that was not very long after Burke and Hare.
2: No, that was actually Burke and Hare were two of the ones that became so well-known. And then there was, another, there was another crime like that not long after um, that really, really pushed them to allow more bodies to be available for medical dissection.
1: We should probably just, I, I don't want to turn this into a true crime podcast, but we should probably quickly mention what their very clever innovation was <laughs> for solving the body shortage. They
2: didn't, they didn't wait for people to die. They just killed them first. Fair Capitalism. Enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> and they had a particular doctor that they would take the body to. They'd kill him. I think the first one may not have even been an intentional sort of murder just to sell the body. I think it was a murder for other reasons. But they found this guy, and I can't think of his name. If you Google it, you can find the guy's name. He, I think, was eventually a well known, fairly well known surgeon. They would just get a body, they'd kill somebody, and they'd sell it to this guy his anatomy table. So Burke and Hare, they're a very well-known case of resurrection men. Yeah,
1: and they've, there's been several dramatizations. I could put some links to that in the show notes. Some funny, some serious, yeah. Well, I was going to say, we, we've burned up more than an hour of interview time, and I'm not even close to being done with questions yes. and conversation. But that's right. Yet, we should stop.
0: Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't mind just asking quickly about death photography, and you kind of touched upon oh, death it death a little bit. But um, I know that there's just a lot of uh, kind of urban legends out there about that. And what was the movie with Nicole Kidman? Was it The Others or something? Yes,
2: The
0: Others. Yeah, The Others. Uh, And there was a death photograph in that film. So how common was that? And that is, I guess, taking photographs of uh, deceased family members with live family members. Was that actually done or is that just an urban legend?
2: It was done sometimes. I think it was done more in the U.S. than in, say, the U.K. Wow. Um, But it was not done nearly as much as people seem to think it was. There are a lot of photographs out there that if you really examine them, the person is not dead. The person is just being propped up with a stand. They would actually use ways to prop people up just to take a normal photograph. They didn't have to be dead to need something to prop themselves up it, it so it, it did happen but it was not, not as common as people think or at least in this in the west and i think that's pretty much where it is a where, only where it was a thing
0: yeah i know it's a thing for for some parents who have still born babies so right photographs taken I, I know said. people
2: who, i know people who've done that so. Yeah,
0: thank you. One more question we like to ask our guests. Tana, what's yes. your
2: favorite monster? Oh, what's my favorite monster? Oh, goodness. I really like the Loch Ness Monster. I was born in Scotland. I've always had a fondness for the Loch Ness Monster. Don't think it exists, but I have been to Loch Ness. I didn't mm-hmm. see anything except uh, the little museum with a bunch of for it, unconvincing evidence for messy but i would have to say that's probably my favorite monster
0: very cool we haven't had that for a while
2: that's
1: very cool we i i love it my, that's on my bucket list not on my kick the bucket. i don't i don't really drop from the airplane in no, the last, house, not but, yeah. so it's not, not on my kick the bucket list but just my regular bucket yeah, list yeah it, oh uh,
0: that'd
1: be so good i'd love to go to scotland uh, there's so many places that i'd like to go and most of them are libraries but you know yeah. I'm a nerd. me too and i
0: thank you very much tana this oh, is such thank a honor. me. absolutely
1: yeah monster talk you've been listening to monster talk the science show about monsters I'm Blake Smith
0: and I'm Karen Stolzner
1: you just heard an interview with Tana Owens-Orman about death practices across history a link to her thesis will be in the show notes check out our monster talk merchandise at monstertalkorg forward slash store where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next level monster enthusiast We hope you enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. We love to talk about monsters in ways that promote critical thinking, inspire scientific curiosity, and help us understand not just the creatures, but ourselves. If you enjoy Monster Talk, please take a moment to leave a positive rating and review on iTunes. Five-star reviews help us show up on the iTunes rating lists and to reach new listeners. Monster Talk is a Patreon-supported podcast at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. You can subscribe to an extended, commercial-free version of the show for as little as $1 a month. We also have a Monster Talk Facebook group, where we have an active community of Monster Talk enthusiasts as well as monster lovers who just wandered in from the cold and found a warm place to relax. Won't you join us? Monster Talk is a production of Monster House, LLC. Music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you again for making the time to listen to our show and for your generous support.